Two matters concern us uniquely today. First, and most importantly, we gather around the Lord's table. We prepare now our hearts to commune with the living Christ and to commune with one another as those who identify with His death and with His resurrection in this way. The second and more common matter that is before us is that we enter partnership today on a three-year giving project. With a first fruits offering on November the 10th, we will initiate a united effort to secure solid financial ground and take decisive steps forward in ministry over the next three years and beyond. Now at first blush, and as I thought through this, it seems these two emphases are in conflict. But the death and resurrection on the one hand, and the spiritual discipline of giving to advance the cause of Christ on the other, are really organically related. At this table, we announce the redeeming death of Jesus Christ. We announce, in part, that this death determines our very identity. We commune only at this table. We do not commune at the table of another God. We do not commune in response to any other creed but Christ crucified and risen for the redemption of His people. Here, we announce that the Gospel is the central hub from which the spokes of our every thought and action, word and intention are to emanate outward. This is our center. So if we see the table, I believe, as something to be kept off to the side as a holy thing, something we don't want to muck up the mundane considerations. We don't want to, to muck this up with these mundane considerations of life. If we think of that in those ways, it may be that we're simply exposing an idolatrous heart. I may not want to taint the story of Jesus' death with earthy considerations because I don't want His sacrifice to make any claim upon my time, on my money, my talents, my life goals. And we need to be cautious and understand by way of qualification, observing the death and resurrection of Christ at this table is a holy undertaking. And we must never prostitute it for our own interests. And yet, it is, I think, idolatrous to view this table as a religious ritual that warms the heart, but has no permanent claim upon my life. It's not permitted to lay any claim upon my actual life. It's just a ritual. There, I think, we break through to the hypocrisy of it. Here, at this table, we pause to recognize the ultimate gift. The impoverishment of Jesus Christ for our eternal enrichment. And here we consider His sacrificial gift of dying in our place to pay the penalty of our iniquities. Here we testify to the fact that His act of selfless impoverishment for the good of others asserts a specific and personal claim 
upon every aspect of our lives. It is this kind of thinking, the robust willingness to integrate the gospel with daily life that elicits one of the classic encapsulations of the gospel from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Paul is earnestly contending with the Corinthian church. He's contending with the the membership there to join him in giving to a ministry project when he pointedly appeals to the death of Jesus Christ for support. I just I want to take that and allow it to speak as it does. What Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we work our way back there here in a moment, to take this honestly, to realize as he appeals to them, he comes back to the death of Christ as the foundation. Are we to accuse Paul of prostituting the death of Christ in order to gain financial resources to press on the cause of Christ? We certainly don't want to do that. This, I believe, is simply how a gospel-saturated mind thinks. There is nothing in life that we don't consider from this center of Christ crucified and risen. It affects everything. Now, obviously, it can be so prostituted. It can be so used to simply serve our own purposes. We need to be cautious there. But let's not take a track that the Bible doesn't take. And what might be somewhat atypical for our preaching ministry, I'd like to link two passages together today as we come before this table and deal with this pragmatic matter that is before us as a church. But I'd like to link two passages from two distinct contexts in order to highlight both the example and the teaching of Jesus with respect to giving. The first text stresses the impoverishment of Christ for our redemption, and it prepares us for the table. The second text brings the example of Jesus' sacrifice to bear upon our lives personally and practically. We're here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're not, make your way there in your Bible. Now, let's remember again the context here, and we've considered this in fairly recent years, but remembering as you've read through the book of 2 Corinthians and as you've read through all of the writings of Paul, if you've had the opportunity to do that, you know that on fair occasion he talks about a gift. And what has happened as we go back into the context is that the saving message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen found its first and dramatic reception in the city of Jerusalem among Jewish believers. Jerusalem became ground zero for the church. As time passed, believers continually left Jerusalem and they fanned out across the known world, spreading the good news about Jesus' conquest and saving power. Largely, they were going to Jews who were following the Old Covenant, knew the revelation of God, but there were some who were finding a response among the Gentiles. They were talking about what Jesus Christ had done. They're they're sharing with them the way in which God had sent His Messiah to pay the penalty of sin. And Gentiles were responding. And it was clear that the Spirit of God was filling them and saving them. With that context in mind, we'll come back to it. I want to just jump off for a moment to an illustration 
Imagine that there's a church that decides they're going to start a church outside of the city, further away, where it's in the country. And this more inner city church is thriving, and they're excited about starting this church, and as they do, they pour in a very significant amount of time and resources to see this church started. And for a number of years, this infant church, this daughter church, struggles to make it financially, struggles to survive, but in the passage of time, the city moves out away from the inner city more and toward this this new area, and soon that daughter church, there's all kinds of people that move into the area, and it begins to thrive and grow and become financially solid. And the mother church, everybody left. It's dying, it's struggling, it's just eking out a living. In one sense, would you not think the daughter church has a certain historical indebtedness to the church that helped her form, right? It would just be natural. Now this illustration is incomplete, but if you get the social feel of that relationship, that is something like the feel of the relationship with the Jerusalem church and these emerging Gentile churches. Jerusalem and Judea, this area, was suffering a severe famine. There was intense persecution. It's not easy to live in this portion of Israel. And so there was some sense of historical indebtedness. The Jerusalem church is where the church formed, where the gospel first was sounded. And so when the Apostle Paul reported to the Jerusalem church that the Gentiles were responding to the gospel, it troubled some of the Jews. But the apostles ultimately rejoiced. How can we stand in the way of what God is doing to call out a people for His name from among the Gentiles? They supported the work. If you remember that text in Genesis 2, they said something really odd to us. Now go back to the church plant situation and if somebody said to that daughter church, remember the mother church financially, it would make perfect sense what that meant. But as the apostles sent the apostle Paul out and said, go, run with this mission to the Gentiles, they also said this in Galatians 2.10, and remember the poor. What does that mean? In some sense, it was a gentle and subtle way of saying we have served as the springboard of the Gentile mission. As you proclaim the gospel of Christ, remember us. We're really hurting here in Jerusalem. Paul was anxious to respond. He didn't say, yeah, well, I'll see what I can do about it. I mean, these Gentiles, you know, giving money to Jews and I don't know if that's going to work and I really am not a PR guy. I don't like doing these kind of financial things. I'll see what I can pull off. What, did, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? He went at it with all of his heart and soul. He worked carefully and diligently with these churches and said we need to re- gain resources to take back to these brothers and sisters who are suffering famine and difficulty in their land. 
And it was a way to kind of respond to that historical indebtedness and in fact to bind the church together across levels that wasn't simply about who you were, Jew or Gentile, but was that we are united in Christ and we share with one another financially. Paul seems to have seen the importance of this gift to the overall health of the church and the continuance of the gospel, and so he went after it hard. He even put some pressure on people to give, and that's what he's doing right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The apostles were concerned that the Gentile mission would thrive and that Judean believers would be forgotten and left to languish. So they suggested the Gentile believers would show solidarity with them and send this aid. Now one of the churches that Paul pressed, as we've mentioned here, is this Corinthian church. He pressed them to be part of this giving project this church in southern Greece. As we've read the text already, I'm going to read it again and go through it quite quickly here, but verses 1 and following, we read in 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What are you going to look for here? God's grace. Here it is. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This is the grace of God in your neighbors to the north. He wants to stimulate the Corinthians to give toward the support of the Judean believers by telling the Corinthians about the response of the Macedonian churches. I mean, what's he up to? It's fairly clear. The Macedonian churches had given substantially. They gave out of their poverty, which means they gave far more than was comfortable or might have seemed possible because they themselves were poor. They were not wealthy in material possessions but they were wealthy verse 2 in generosity and for this generosity for this sacrificial orientation toward the work of the church their reputation is trumpeted by paul now notice that he does not exalt in their money not in the money that they gave ultimately he exalts in god's grace to which their contributions bore clear evidence It's important to grasp this. Can I say it again? He does not exalt in the money they gave. He exalts in God's grace to which their contributions bore clear evidence. This kind of thing, Paul says, does not happen on its own. There's a work of God going on here. That these Gentile believers would think of the Jewish believers in Judea and would give out of their poverty to help them and to connect the church across the miles and to strengthen it. That's a God thing. These kinds of things don't happen on their own. Accordingly, Paul continues, verse 6, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in, all, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. There's a variant there. It might be their love for him, but it's shared love. We'll just put it that way. Titus is going to appeal to you to contribute to this giving project. He's coming. I'm sending him. And what does Paul say? He kind of works out the psychology of it to motivate them. He says, you're godly people. Now, I think that's fairly generous for the Corinthians, but he says, you're godly people. Now show your spiritual maturity by excelling not only in moral virtue, but also in the grace of giving. Well, that says something to us. What do you think? Should a Christian grow in faith? Should we learn to control our tongues and use our speech to edify others? We all know, if we know the Bible and we know the Lord, yes, we should. Of course we should. Should we grow in our knowledge of God's Word, possess a zeal for God, and share in Christian love? Of course we should. This is the calling of a Christian. Here's the truth that Paul reveals. It is just as vital that we discipline our lives to excel in the grace of giving. There's a grace of our speech there's a grace of our efforts for God, a grace of our knowledge of His truth, and there is a grace in giving in which we must excel. One solid evidence of spiritual vitality in a believer's life is an earnest desire to invest material wealth in the cause of Christ. Now, I might be motivated to invest in the cause of Christ as an unbeliever because I'm confused about what's happening and I might be seeking in, on some level to gain favor from people, to impress others, to seek to please God with my giving. There's all kinds of false motivations, of course, but where it is an earnest gift that says, I want the cause of Christ to advance, that's an evidence that God is at work in our life and that we are cooperating with the risen Christ as he calls out a people of his own to build up his church. Now nowhere in the New Testament is such giving to Christ's cause ever seen as anything other than a privilege. It is never an obligation. It is always a privileged opportunity. It is always, if done with right motivation, a evidence of genuine love for God. And so, this is why Paul says in verse 8, I say this not as a command. Not telling you what to do with your material resources. But I say this, verse 8, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I, mean, I know he's an apostle, but boy, that's putting, the, that's putting the pressure on, isn't it? Your neighbors to the north in Macedonia this is what they've done. And I want to test against what they've done, the earnestness of your own faith. Yeah, I mean, you can write this off a thousand ways. This is just competitive. This is psychological manipulation. This is a person that's just doing... He, he, this is wrong. I'm not going to argue with him. And I'm not going to argue with what God did through it. And I think we have to be careful in order to argue this way in our day and time and with our less than authoritative voice. But look at what he says. I'm saying this to prove 
by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. They have set a standard. Are you going to meet it? That's what he says. And the pillar that adorns and supports his entire argument, here it is. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I'd like you, as you look at the text there, to notice in verse 7, I want you to make a connection here, if you will. Verse 7 says, excel in this act of grace. That's his call to them. See that you excel in this act of grace. Connect that down to verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's just accidental. I want you to excel in this grace. You know the grace of Christ. The grace demonstrated in Jesus' life is to be displayed in your life as well. What Jesus did on the cross, you may not be called to die in that way, but what He did on the cross is to directly affect your life. There's a personal claim upon you because of what He did. What was that grace in Jesus' life? Though rich, He impoverished Himself so that we might be rich. We gather at this table then Let's say it. Let's rejoice in it. We gather at this table today as the richest people in the universe. If we could for one minute put everything in eternal perspective, if we could for one minute dim the glare of material possessions that surrounds us, if we could for one minute see heaven's riches and really grasp what it means to be a child of God with sins forgiven, we would know that we are infinitely more wealthy than earth's richest people. I bank my life and hope in that. I know someday it'll be made clear. Right now it's not. We're a humble, simple people compared to the wealthy of this world. But they don't know what wealth is. He made us rich. And here at this table we recognize that Jesus left the splendors of heaven. He left aside the reputation as God and was impoverished, took taking on that poverty in order to give us His righteousness. So Paul says, excel, excel in this act of grace. Give freely and earnestly to the cause of Christ, not to earn God's favor, not as an obligation, but as an act of solidarity with Jesus who impoverished Himself for you. Someone who is really linked into the cause or into the story of Christ, crucified and risen, becomes a giver. It's natural. Can I stress it again? Giving does not earn God's favor. It reflects it. Giving does not meet an obligation. It is the privileged participation in God's redemptive purposes. And ultimately, everything then hinges on the impoverishment of Christ for us. That changes everything. In the next few weeks, I'd like us to consider some of Jesus' teaching on material wealth. 
It's fascinating material. It's life-altering life altering material. It might be alterating too, I don't know, but whatever that meant. Uh, but it, it is, it, it, it's troubling material. I love it when Jesus is troubling. It's troubling, so you don't like that part of it. But it's amazing how he takes our thinking and reworks it. It's a good and sanctifying process for us. But today we start with an intriguing saying of Jesus that does not come directly from his mouth, but is a word of instruction that challenges us to orient our lives to our Savior's example. So I'm trying to move here from the example of Christ who impoverished himself to something he said about how we live in response to that. And I invite you to Acts chapter 20 as we look at this simple statement that's drawn out from the teachings of the Apostle Paul. We travel now to the western coast of modern-day Turkey. So heading off east from Greece to the port city of Miletus that serviced the city of Ephesus. It was the port city of Ephesus. And here on the Mediterranean Sea, the Apostle Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church to meet with him for the last time on earth. The Apostle had enjoyed and endured the trials of a very fruitful ministry at Ephesus, you remember. For an unusual length of time, the preaching of the gospel sounded forth from Ephesus with effect and it spread from there throughout the surrounding region. Paul's speech to the spiritual shepherds of the church is then a classic on pastoral care as he recounts the ministry that he had there. We don't have the time to develop the central angle of that speech but in a side note, we encounter this line of instruction from Jesus on giving. It could be a summary, it could be a quotation of sayings of Christ that were out there that did not find their way into the gospel specifically. But in context, he's warned the elders that false teachers will rise up within the church and they must be confronted with the truth. We pick up Paul's speech at verse 31. So with that setting, now we come to verse 31 of Acts 20. And he says, therefore, be alert, <clears throat> remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Yeah, great benediction, wouldn't it? You could take that verse and use that as a benediction at the end of one of our services and everybody would know we're closing. And Paul seems to be saying, I'm closing, and then it's like, wait a minute, I forgot one really important point. I don't know if that's the case, but he jumps off from that closing statement there to say, I've got to say something further. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You remember that? I was not with you to gain wealth. That's another piece of my example pastorally that I want you to not forget and to put into practice. You're not an elder in the church of Ephesus to get money. They may encourage you that way. They are to care for you. It is an important relationship there, but you don't covet wealth. Not only did he not covet a heart issue, he left behind a legacy of the opposite. Verse 34. 
You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in order to silence his critics and to carry on the ministry in the best possible way. Paul worked a secular job to provide his own needs and the needs of the team that was traveling with him, others around him in their evangelistic endeavors. This was above and beyond the call of duty for Paul, but it permitted him to leave behind a very important example. So, verse 35, in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. I worked with my own hands to provide financial needs. I was not in this to gain wealth for myself, but I was in this to live a life of giving. And what is it that encourages Paul forward? What is the motivation behind living in this way? He says at the middle of verse 35, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When speaking to the Corinthians about a giving project, Paul turns to Jesus' death. Here, in speaking of financial matters, he appeals to Jesus' teaching. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think we have to be careful here. It is also blessed to make and enjoy material possessions. 1 Timothy 6 makes that very clear. It's good and right to amass wealth. Unless circumstances dictate otherwise, God grants us the ability to earn wealth and the freedom to enjoy it. God's blessing enables us to accumulate material possessions and even more so, and that's the point, even more so, God's blessing on our lives enables us to give wealth away. Now, we have no problem with the first idea. I've never heard resistance there. Somebody might feel a little false guilt about enjoying wealth. They should not. It's God's counsel to us, but nobody has a problem with that one. God gives us wealth to enjoy. But it is more enjoyable to give. Now there we've got to do some work. There we've got heart issues that get bound up inside of us where we really don't see it that way. I give out of obligation. I give as little as I can. Giving hurts. I don't like the idea of it. I want to keep. But Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. He taught Paul that there is a unique benefit from God that is a quality of relationship with Him. There is, a, there is a gift of joy that can only be experienced as we learn the discipline of giving wealth away. And who are we to argue with Him? It is more blessed to give than to receive. I think it means this. If we do not understand this truth, it's because we're spiritually dull and tracking outside of the blessing of God. If we do not understand the truth of this statement, it's because we have not adequately comprehended the impoverishment of Christ for our eternal benefit. We're just not connected there. But as we do understand his impoverishment for our redemption, we come to the place and the understanding where we recognize it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. We can't give all that we'd like. Sometimes we don't know how to give. Sometimes we're not sure even what's wise to do in the area of giving. And all of that understood, we should have a sense that giving is a discipline that is blessed by God. And so join me here at this table. And let us affirm together here that the impoverishment of Jesus Christ is for us the ultimate source of eternal enrichment. Let us here identify with Christ and His people as those who have been purchased by the sacrificial gift of Jesus' death in our place. And let us here say that we could never repay Jesus for what He's done. And it would be evil to think that we could but let us here say that His saving grace to become poor so that we through His poverty might become rich lays a claim on everything. Everything I am, everything that I have integrated with the One who through impoverishment enriched his people because Jesus became poor for our benefit we now live a life that rejoices to say it is more blessed to give than to receive and here we come around the central foundation of that whole thinking and we commune in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We commune in His gift to us, which has made us eternally rich. Let's gather in that spirit as we eat and drink together.